This is too, uh, it's too spacious in here. <laughs> it's lacking in intimacy. <laughs> we are uh, today in chapter 6 of Micah, sort of, and uh, chapter 7 next week. Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah, which means about 700 B.C., uh, a prophet to the uh, whole, all of Israel, uh, a good part of what he's writing is, is in the time of good King Hezekiah in Jerusalem, so he doesn't have a lot of bad things to say about the king. But the general theme here in Micah has been uh, to Israel, you guys aren't doing very well. Uh, you're really uh, causing me a lot of grief, God says, and a lot of pain and a lot of heartbreak, and I, uh, for the following reasons, and... Uh, more troubles coming upon you. The Babylonians are going to come in and, and uh, carry the two southern tribes uh, off into Babylon for 70 years. And meanwhile, right in this very time period, the Assyrians have raided and plundered the ten northern tribes and hauled them off into captivity and plundering the cities of Judah and threatening Jerusalem, all in this time scale. And yet in the middle of all this gloom, uh, uh, Micah has some tremendous announcements of Israel's long-term future. Some of the most beautiful prophecies of the coming of Messiah and the long-term eventual future of Israel. Uh, So these are kind of juxtaposed. Last week in chapter 5, let's go back and start with chapter 5 to get the continuity. In chapter 5, we had uh, that beautiful Christmas announcement of the coming of Messiah uh, that he would in fact be born in Bethlehem but you Bethlehem Ephrathah that makes it the Bethlehem that's six Roman miles south of Jerusalem instead of the Bethlehem which is up in Zebulun different Bethlehem house of bread uh, Ephrathah means fruitful but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you're little among the thousands of Judah, small in, uh, inconsequential village, yet out of you shall come forth to me, God says, for me, the one who is to be the ruler in Israel, the Messiah, the one who is my appointed ruler over Israel. And there's something unusual about this ruler, his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. This is no ordinary baby. This is the incarnate Son of God. This is God in the flesh coming to do the will of the Father, coming for God's own own purposes. How could that be any clearer about than, than pointing to Jesus? Now, suddenly, uh, there's a jump. Therefore he, God, shall give them, Israel, give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Now there's a big time jump. It says, it's not going to go well for you guys in the meantime in your near-term future, Israel, 700 B.C. It's going to be rough because you're going to go off to Babylon. You're going to come back weak and be insignificant, be overrun by the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans. And, and when Messiah is born... Uh, he'll be born in a very uh, uh, low time of Israel's history, a very unimportant time, and so uh, uh, and, not, and not only that, but the Messiah is going to come and go rather quickly. 
that's not even mentioned in here. The Messiah is going to be born and grow up and, and uh, teach for three years. Uh, incredible teachings that we have in the New Testament. And then he's going to die on the cross. Then he's going to disappear as far as Israel is concerned. And he's going to disappear for 2,000 years. So that's all in between the verses here. He, God, will give them, Israel, give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. And then it jumps all the way to the end of history. Then the remnant of his brothers, Messiah's brothers, shall return to the children of Israel. Then way, way in the distant future, the Messiah is coming back and he's going to regather the rest of his Jewish believers, brothers, from the nations of the world. Hadn't happened yet. Matthew 24. Okay, now we're going to jump ahead to when Messiah really is the actual king in Israel. Hasn't happened yet. Verse 4. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. This one, this Messiah will be Jehovah Shalom the key to world peace see how that runs ahead on into the future when the Messiah, when Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep the greater flock is Israel and we are also sheep that have been added into his pasture and so the whole world will get shepherdly care from this great Messiah stand and feed his flock in the glory of the Lord and that peace that he set institutes in Jerusalem will spread to the ends of the earth Encompassing us Gentiles way out in the corner. All right? Yeah. I'm sorry, it's like the non peace is also streaming out from there right now through the whole world. It's just like, everybody, the Pope prays for peace every Christmas, and, and all these peace conferences in the Middle East go on and on and on, and Jesus is never mentioned. Uh, and he's the one that is Jehovah Shalom. He is the one who is himself our peace and our reconciler okay now we take another we 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 go back at ver, verse 5 we go back to an invasion of israel by the assyrians now this is not historic this isn't the assyrians that invaded in uh, isaiah and micah's time this is end of the age and the assyrians here would be russia turkey iran um, uh, invading the armies invading for the battle of armageddon when the Assyrian comes into our land the last time and when he treads in our palaces then we Israel will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men the next time when the final invasion of Israel uh, threatens our total destruction and the Palestinian maps by the way of Israel that have just been published show no Israel at all they show the whole piece of top property is all Palestinian and no Jews because they're going to wipe out all the Jews not so because at that very last hour during this final invasion Messiah himself will return and awaken uh, uh, brave and strong warriors a representative here is seven uh, uh, shepherds and eight princely men will rise up and suddenly triumph over the enemies they shall waste with the sword the land of Babylon the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he, God, will deliver us, Israel, from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. 
when the enemy comes in, God will at last defend his people. Tiny little nation, relatively strong militarily, but uh, not against the armies of the world. But God's the one who defends Israel. Uh, so uh, uh, he who touches Israel touches the apple of God's eye. So you're going to be careful about wiping out the Jews. Verse 7, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. And the believers of Israel who survive will be representatives of God to all the nations, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. And the remnant of Jacob, believers in Jesus, the believing remnant of Israel, not all Jews, but those who believe in Jesus, shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, who, if he passes through, both treads down and tears in pieces, and none can deliver. Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. So uh, the the Jews who know the Lord Jesus will be his representatives to the nations of the world, and they'll have clout and impact and, and weightiness and empowerment to shape the Gentiles up. That's us. Okay? So there's a great day of deliverance coming for Israel, and a wonderful time of world peace which starts in Jerusalem and permeates and spreads to the whole world. But now we get in verse 10, we got to purge Israel and also the nations of their deeply embedded idolatry. It shall be in that day. Remember that little phrase, in that day is a clue to something end time. In that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. Horses and chariots, Egypt, war, weapons. We're not going to. We're not going to bring this peace in uh, by the use of military weapons. Are we going to cut off all of your military resources and go back to other ways of doing things? I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all of your strongholds or all of your armies. I'm going to cut off all of your human strength and human resources with which you think you can solve the problems of the world. I'll cut off your sorceries from your hand. You'll have no soothsayers, no fortune tellers, uh, no false teachers, no false prophets. Your carved images I will cut off and your sacred pillars from your midst and you will no longer worship the work of your hands. Take pride in your own human self-effort. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst and I will destroy your cities. I will execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that do not obey. So this isn't just Israel. It's the cleansing and purging of the whole world of all of the idolatry in all of its forms and the tearing down of things that human beings have built up in their own pride and arrogance. So we're not just going to have happy golden age on earth without the purging of idolatry and the removal of all the deeply embedded evil. It's been here for thousands of years now. Okay? So you can see how Micah puts good news, bad news, good news, bad news here and and some qualifications. Now in chapter 6 we get a change. We get a courtroom scene. Uh, we're, We're going to have a trial here. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. We're going to call into court as the witnesses uh, the mountains and the hills. 
uh, we're going to call nature to come in and testify and give give testimony in this courtroom. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the Lord, because the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So God wants to take his people to court, but already this is already softened by the use of the term his people. That's always a term of endearment. His beloved people. He's got to have to take them to court. And not only that, but God goes to court as the defendant in the case. He takes the role of the defendant, puts Micah in the place of the judge, and then he asks Israel to please come in and press charges against him. How's that for God sort of stepping down and saying uh, that he would like to ask the people what he's done wrong? That's what he does. Now that's God's approach to this. Oh, my people, once again. Oh, my beloved people. What have I done to you? Where have I failed you? Uh, Where did I mess up? That's obviously ridiculous to think that God has failed his people or messed up, but that's the question he's putting to them. And may the mountains and hills bear testimony of God's failures, how he's failed. He says, How have I wearied against you? Testify against me. Well, of course, nobody can say a single word, but nevertheless, that's the question God asks of his people. And he says, uh, according to my notes here, I brought you up out of Egypt, did I not? Didn't I bring you up a thousand years ago, more than a thousand years ago, out of that terrible bondage under Pharaoh when you were suffering and miserable and enslaved? And didn't I deliver you with a whole series of miraculous acts and events and supernatural things, the crossing of the Red Sea, and didn't I do that just out of sheer love and mercy for you? Says I my notes say. God says to Israel, and he says, And I sent before you, I I put Moses and Aaron and Miriam there to go with you. Uh, Moses is the great leader, your great leader and, and great shepherd, and then I put Aaron in and the priesthood to to teach you and guide you and remember Miriam and remember the great song of Moses that was sung when the Jews crossed the Red Sea and remember the deliverance you remember that can you remember that oh my people again pleading remember now how Balak the king of Moab counseled and what Balaam the son of Beor answered him uh, remember the when you were ready to come into the land and you went up the east side of the Jordan through the land of Moab and Edom and Ammon and you came and the king of Moab wouldn't want you, let you go through his land and in fact the king of Moab hired this false prophet named Balaam to curse you the wonderful story of that in Numbers and how Balaam tried his best to curse Israel and couldn't and God thwarted him and he ended up making a prophecy that's of Israel's glorious future and king of Moab got furious at that but that was God thwarted that false prophet Balaam and the people of Israel arrived safely at Acacia Grove, a little city of Shittim on the east side of the Jordan. They got all the way to the end of their journey and then they crossed the Jordan River into Gilgal. Didn't I get you all the way into the promised land? Uh, That you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. A track record here and then it sort of stops you know you could go on from there you could talk about the conquest of Jericho and the and uh, and the, the conquest of the land and the establishment of the land all the great things that God did in the history after that but it's, it sort of stops leaves it up to you to 
to go on and think about what God's done for Israel. Uh, you, you and I should do the same sort of thing. You want to look back over your life and point, and look at all the things God has saved you from or done for you or rescued you from. You should make a little chart of all the bad things that could have happened to you and didn't and all the extra things that God did to give you joy and friendship and, and forgiveness and new life again and again and again and again. Is there, can you make a chart like that? Well, I'm sure that people are... Uh, are uh, bound to stop and think about that now it, it's the judge it's Micah speaking I think that can't be sure but it sounds like it's Micah speaking and he's speaking in an ironical tone of voice here uh, and uh, uh, he's speaking on uh, sort of uh, on behalf of the people and uh, he asked God what shall I come before the how with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God uh, I wonder what this God really wants of us. He's asking this sort of on behalf of Israel. He says, here's this God who charges us for not, uh, who says that we don't seem to care and we don't seem to appreciate him. I wonder if we're doing enough for God. I wonder if we're really doing all that we ought to do. Uh, shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or 10,000 rivers of oil? Uh, this is a big God. Maybe we're not giving enough, um, uh, enough sacrifices, enough oil. Maybe he needs a little more oil or a few more burnt offerings. And in fact, maybe I should even give my firstborn as an offering for sin. Maybe I should make that ultimate sacrifice, which suggests child sacrifice. We unthinkable to the Jews but it was common among the pagans and the law of Moses did ask that your firstborn son should be dedicated to the Lord not killed so so Micah is sort of saying well look God what more do you want out of us uh, haven't we been doing enough I mean how come you're taking us to court and the answer to that is found in this marvelous little much quoted verse that everybody quotes especially around Christmas which says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Well, that's really really simple, isn't it? All God wants you to do is to be well-behaved and, and uh, polite and reasonably religious, and, and isn't that all God really wants of you? Isn't that... So uh, forget about all this big, uh, heavy weight of uh, religious ceremony and all these sacrifices. It just just boils down to just be nice. Is that what that really means? No way. Don't take that verse out of context. (laughs) And stop and think about what God wants out of you. That's what he's saying here. What does God want out of you? Because you're going to have to stop and think about this a little bit. What he wants of you is to do Justly, Miss Pat. What does it mean to do justly? God would like you to live justly. Now, put that in ordinary English for our our time. Ready? Give a try. A A good and honest life with integrity in all that you do, in your private life and your public life, and all of your dealings with your fellow men. Are you just? And honest in honest in all your business dealings, truthful, straightforward, reliable, dependable, are you? 
Oh, do justly. Lifestyle. It's probably two that you can't solve all the problems of the world, but a few that are near you, you're called to respond to. How are you dealing with those people that come into your life casually or regularly? How are you dealing with them? Okay, how about loving mercy? Now, the word mercy is that wonderful Hebrew word hesed, which means loyal love or loving kindness. What's that about? Loving kindness. Are you, because God's loving kindness toward us. Uh, to what extent do you really love your neighbor as yourself? Really? I mean, really? As yourself? Well, I just, I love the juxtaposition of the three together. Because the three together are beautiful together. Because justice with mercy and humility. Yeah, and humility. Yeah. Now, how are you going to live this way if you have ignored the law of Moses? If you are ignoring the law of Moses then, and you don't live this way, then you've broken all the commandments. So all those sacrifices were in vain because you didn't learn from them. How do you, where do you get the capacity to live this kind of a life? Where do you get the ability to be this kind of a person? Where do you get that from? You get it from the fulfillment of the law, and how do you get the law fulfilled in you? It's written in your hearts. And what is God really upset with Israel down through the years? He's upset with their hypocrisy and their phoniness and their religiosity. And how many people go to church on Sunday morning and they get all pepped up by the sermon and the music and they get all hyped up and they feel really sort of close to God and then go home and ignore absolutely everything they heard at church and live just exactly the way they lived the rest of the week? Just ordinary pagan American lives? And that's what God's upset with. He hates formal religion. He hates hypocrisy. He, he hates it when you don't see through those precious, valuable sacrifices to what's behind it all. And that's who Jesus really backed the truck up on were the, the religious people. That was all external. And Jesus really came down on and backed the truck over the Pharisees <laughs> <laughs> with uh, the four-wheel drive engaged. <laughs> Full speed. Yes, uh, God hates religion. He hates the formal show of religion when your heart's not in it. What he really wants is lifestyle. That's what. That's the bottom line. And he wants your lifestyle 24-7. And the humility is knowing we can't do it by ourselves. And the humility, see how you... You cannot do this by yourself. You're going to you're gonna have to lean on Jesus because he's the only one that has these abilities. Okay? So this is a beautiful, beautiful little expression of, of the importance of walking with Jesus and drawing on his life uh, 24-7 and the, and the sacrifices in the temple and all the offerings and all those services are there to point you to this, to remind you of that, to his teaching to aids, and don't get caught in the externals of all the religion. Just a note, I tried to get this license plate and it's taken. Oh, you did? Oh, <laughs> let's go to the guy that has the license plate and buy it from him for you. Steal it from him. <laughs> steal it from him. <laughs> You're more worthy, yeah. <laughs> steal, mercifully steal it from him, yeah. I think that this, uh, to walk humbly with your God, is to let us know that God is with us, or can be, or will be, and should be with us at all times. 
that whatever we do, we're doing in the presence of God. Sometimes we think we're doing something and nobody sees us. Nobody knows. If we're walking humbly with our God, God sees us because he's right with us. Yeah. Now, this is a rather dramatic courtroom scene here, and the whole nation's been called in, and there's there's a lot of irony and humor in this courtroom scene. And, of course, the people all immediately say, you know, God, you're right. We're going to change our lives, and we're going to do things differently starting today. Wrong. Because what follows immediately next? What comes next? The Lord's voice cries in the city. Wisdom shall see your name. Hear the rod, who has appointed it? God's saying, sorry, you didn't listen to me. We're going to have more Assyrians coming in here. We're going to have more of the rod of chastening. Uh, look, I've been, I've been checking up on you guys since that day in court, and when we went over all this together, and he says, uh, are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? Haven't seen anybody really changing their lives around any. And short measure, that is an abomination. That would be cheating in business and cheating in, in commitments and so on. Shall I count pure those with wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? That would be weights and measures and, and uh, uh, falsehood and lying and cheating and deceit. And it has seen, There's no, no change. No, it's still the same. I think God checks up on the rich men are full of violence didn't affect the rich her inhabitants have spoken lies their tongue is deceitful in their mouth so uh, no matter how I plead with you guys no matter how I beg you and no matter how uh, interesting figures I couch this in and I have been tender and gentle and loving but year after year goes by and I don't get any change in your lifestyles Therefore, I will also make you sick by striking you. I'm going to continue to chasten you and by, uh, make you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied. You shall hunger, uh, uh, but uh, hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away, but uh, shall not save them. And what you do rescue, I'll give over to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You will tread the olives, but not anoint yourselves with the oil, and make sweet wine, but not drink wine. So what does God say he's going to do to his people? You're going to go ahead and eat and drink, and, and, and your life is going to be empty and meaningless and dried up, and you won't know why. That's a pretty terrible thing to have happen, isn't it? Even if, say, you've got money and you're comfortable and, and you've got food and you've got friends and it's all empty and meaningless and the joy is all gone and it's all dried up and that's all God, just his long-term judgments on his people Israel. Pretty strong. Hmm? Sow but not reap. Now it's even worse because he says, The statutes of Omri are kept. All the works of Ahab's house are done, and you walk in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, your inhabitants a hissing. Therefore you shall bear the reproach of my people. What's, who's Omri? Who's Ahab? What'd they do? Nice guys? No, bad. Up north, Omri, founder of a dynasty that... Uh, his son was Ahab and Ahab was a wonderful charming man was he? <laughs> no, he was a wimpy guy 
Mary Jezebel imported in all the idolatry over from Tyre the worship of Baal and Ashtaroth uh, managed to kill most of God's prophets and castrate the rest of them and and uh, remember that what, she, just a terrible terrible woman yeah, what about uh, who's his name's vineyard Neboth's, yeah, yeah. Remember that Jezebel decided that Ahab, Ahab wanted this nice vineyard and it didn't belong to him. So Jezebel said, "Oh, oh, honey, don't worry, I'll fix that for you." And she went and got some false witnesses against Neboth and had him put to death. And so she quietly annexed the vineyard for her sweet dear husband Ahab. She's a really nice lady, a really sweet lady, and she just practically destroyed the country spiritually. And she had a daughter. Her, her daughter Athaliah is one of the nicest kindest, gentlest ladies in the whole Bible. If you want to get a horror story, you want to read about Athaliah, because she very nearly destroyed, got down to Jerusalem, very nearly destroyed the family line that led to Jesus. And she would have if she could have. Um, so this is so, so all of this terrible idolatry that Ahab has brought into the northern tribes has found its way into Jerusalem now. And I can't, God says, I'm shocked to see that, that your behavior has re- reduced to that low level of pagan idolatry as a nation. What else can I do but let you go become desolate and make you the reproach of many people? Down through the years, are people going to say nice things about Israel and how godly Israel is and what a wonderful example they are? Are people going to say, oh, Israel is, is such a wonderful uh, uh, example to us of godly living? Is that what people are going to say? What does Paul say? Paul's comments on this when he uh, talks to the Jews and Romans. It's it's you Jews that bring reproach on my name before the Gentiles. You guys give me a bad name as far as the Gentiles are concerned. Uh, The behavior of the Gentiles in some ways is better than you guys behave. So there's the, there's uh, Micah's word for Christmas for us. (laughs) How about some thoughts and discussion on this? This is which hundreds and hundreds of years go by and Israel's behavior doesn't change really and why would we think that we Gentiles who are privileged to know the same God, the God of Israel why would we suppose that we get the message when they didn't that we've behaved and shaped up but they didn't And why, why would we expect that we are really really all doing well maybe we are, maybe we're not what do you think? Would you say the church in America is doing really, really well these days? That we have learned what Israel didn't learn? Probably not. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? A little bit, A little bit here and there. You know, the, the, the positive note that runs in here, there's, sort of, there's a, a little theme running along in all the prophets, and it's the theme of the remnant. There is a godly remnant in every generation. Sometimes it's a small remnant, and sometimes it's just the remnant gets bigger, and that's where the hope of the future lies is with the godly remnant who do heed. We've got a good part of the remnant here. I remnant of Palo Alto here, I suppose, today. I don't know about the church down the street. But that it, 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 it does depend on you and me, in other words. 
I think there's a real sense here of what they call it the sins of omission, that it's not just what you don't do, but we're called to be writing things, not just not doing bad things. That's, that's very good. It's not enough just to, look, to go live a quiet, decent, moral life and, and not cause any trouble. That's not enough. How about the active side of doing, doing some uh, assertive good for people, reaching out, uh, expending the, uh, your influence into the lives of other people? How about that? The sins of omission are, are a big deal. Things you could have done but you didn't do. <coughs> I think that's just great. Yeah. Yeah. How about how about a li- an attitude, a uh, deliberately cultivated attitude of worship and prayer and thanksgiving, where you just stop complaining about your circumstances and you stop and start remembering what God has done for you and thanking Him for this. This does that change your the way you live? It does for me works really well for me. I, I, on that note, I think I might have mentioned this, but. The boys and I read through Robinson Crusoe, and there's a remarkable confession of faith in that book. And halfway through it, he does he does exactly that. He writes down the ledger. I could have, you know, he shipwrecked on the island. He says, I could have been lost for dead like the other ten people with me, but I was spared. This could have happened. And he just makes this really remarkable side-by-side list of what he was thankful for. It was just a really neat... Doesn't that that's that does that's, that's really the value of worship? You know, God isn't impressed with our worship as such, and He, he enjoys and delights in our worship. But it does us the real good. Preston. Uh, when I was reading uh, Henry Nowen's uh, Return of the Prodigal, uh, he has a nifty way of boiling it all down to just two things: uh, trust and gratitude. Uh, both uh, go together. I mean, you know, uh, depending on the Lord, none of this this gratitude is. And then also I was wondering about our expectations of revival. I don't think there's much in the Bible suggesting that revivals last. Like even with Nehemiah, it degenerates back into formalism or something. And the same with the Walsh revival. I don't know what the most recent revival has been. But uh, I think, you know, when you pray for revival, I'm wondering, why not pray for a stronger remnant? instead of praying for revival, because revival is, is sort of the idea of, oh, Christianity's going to be popular again. <laughs> you got to watch out for that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Good, great. Uh, the, the remnant uh, w- w- would be little known and obscure mostly. Most of the people in the remnant, you wouldn't, they would not be big name all-star preachers necessarily. They probably wouldn't hardly even know they're there. Might be even un- disliked obscure what else do you what else what else do you see in here 
in the end, uh, this wonderful little verse 8, in the end, your lifestyle, as far as God's concerned, is a pretty simple deal. Is it not? Does he want great acts of heroism out of you? Does he want you to be a great, go uh, give yourself to the lions and be martyred? Does he want you to do great, magnificent works? No. He just wants a godly, quiet lifestyle. But, which from all of us. That boils down to that. Look at what a personal God we have here. He calls his Israel his people, even though they have no right to be called his people. So he's totally loyal to them. And he's tender-hearted and he's kind. And God's a living person. He's a living person. Because he's invisible, we don't tend to think of him as a person. But he's affected by emotions and by actions and by how we live. That's, that's what gets to him. And he longs for intimacy with his people. He longs that he could be use you because he cares for the people that are outside of your sphere of influence. He would love to have some instrument available, one of you available to reach the next door neighbors or reach down the block or, or let the world know about him. And does he find very many people that are available with his heart for the world? How do you suppose, how do you, what do you think it would be like to be God sitting up in heaven and, and looking down on the world for whom Christ died? Sin's all paid for. That's not the real deal. The real deal isn't solving the problem of human sin and evil. That's not the big deal. big deal is, would you like to be forgiven? Would you like to have your sins erased? Would you like to have a fresh new start? Would you like to be empowered to live the kind of life that you were created for with joy and liberty and freedom? Isn't that a pretty good deal? Well, a lot of people haven't heard about that. Lots and lots of people haven't heard about it expressed in contemporary terms. A lot of people have heard about the church. Uh, a lot of people think Christians are bigoted and narrow-minded and uncaring and, and judgmental, so they wouldn't be terribly interested in going to church. Uh, we have lots of people going around us that don't understand this father love of God, this father heart of God's love for them and for us. Don't you get more out of giving things away than you, and when you actually give God's love to somebody and it works? Isn't that about the most exciting thing in the world to have God use you? Just to say, here I am, use me, Lord. Push back my, my fears and my, the, my borders and use me. Isn't that just about the neatest thing? I just love email when I get email from, from uh, people. I got a nice, an email this week from a young man who's probably in his 20s. Uh, who said, would you watch this little video clip that I made? And it was beautifully done. He's very artistic and gifted. And it was this wonderful talk on, uh, uh, it was really New Age, on how the secret of human happiness is all about oneness with God, and God is everything. And uh, So it, it ended at this sort of New Age version of religion. And, and I liked the movie because it's very well done. So I wrote him back and I said, gee, that was beautifully done. And he said, "I reminded me of when I was 25. <laughs> I used to believe just that very thing. <laughs> I said, you've said it so eloquently. And I thought it just brought back all kinds of memories of what happened before I met Jesus. <laughs> and I, I put that in at the end. And then he wrote me right back and he said... Uh, would you some, suggest some books that I might read? <laughs> and I said, oh, well, yeah, how about some C.S. Lewis? 
And then he wrote right back and says, oh, yes, I read. I remember reading the Narnia stories. In fact, I used to teach fourth grade, and I read my fourth grade students the Narnia tales. And he said, thank you. And I told him to read. I snuck up on him, and I said, read screw tape letters and the great divorce and miracles and mere Christianity. I put that down there on the list. And, <laughs> and he wrote back, and he says, oh, thanks very much. You, this is really great. I'm going to go out and get these books and read them right away. So now I thought... That wasn't a big deal. What a, what a, what fun that was. And, and then I said, I hope we can be friends. And he wrote right back and he said, oh, yes, we are friends. <laughs> so it isn't that hard. That is really key. Is the lost are not the They're not your enemy. They're not your enemy. And, and, and you can love them quite safely. And once in a while I get an email back that's angry and furious. And how dare you bring up religion and I tell him I'm not bringing up religion I hate religion and I like it but I'd like to talk about Jesus he owns the universe anyway <laughs> so that's not hard and it's fun and, and, and it's you know you've got to be creative at this with the, we're in a sophisticated world where all kinds of people know what the church says and they they know the King James words you have to be a little more creative and it's fun it's great fun Anybody have any further thoughts on time of the year? It, it seems right about this time of year. It's a joyous and wonderful time for some people, and it's a terrible time for other people. Uh, people, too, all get a little sentimental at Christmas, uh, even a lot of unbelievers, and so they're a little more vulnerable, and you can talk to them a little more readily, and you can do a great deal for very lonely, hurting people by just showing them a little kindness. Showing a little kindness toward the the clerks and the people that are hassled and serving you and and go out of your way uh, every day. I I like to stop and pay attention to the clerk in the grocery store just because I think that's a real person whom God loves and I don't know what her whole life is all about. It's probably unhappy and she's smiling because it's her job. But I wonder if her income stretches far enough to meet her needs I wonder if anybody ever says anything kind to her uh, just even a little bit I, stop and think about that stranger you're engaging they have a life they have a history what is it what's, what, what do they go home to do they go home to the quiet peace and love that you have or do they go home to darkness and emptiness and loneliness and misery and it's all it's all love, is it not? It's just all about, and God's the great lover. He's just the great lover. Didn't need to create the universe. It wasn't necessary. wasn't needed. Uh, God's perfectly complete in himself. So it's a sort of a kind of wonder why he bothered to create a universe and cause him so much pain and trouble. Uh, he who is overflowing love and doesn't need us. And he decided, well, we'll take this big gamble. The three of us were going to really gamble, and we're going to create this universe and make people very much like ourselves, able to love but able to refuse love, and let's see what happens. And if these people screw up down there, it's going to be really costly for us, three of us. He says, do we want to go to all that pain and misery? Because you know, these people are too much like us. They're going to go really wrong. They're not going to go a little bit wrong. They're going to go totally wrong. And to make it possible for them to come into a relationship with us is going to cost us big. Let's not bother. But he bothered. And down through the years, hundreds, thousands of years have gone by now. And God still bothers. And he hasn't cut it off. 
And every once in a while somebody says yes to his love, bringing him great joy and great delight and great happiness in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit say, it was worth it. And you remember what it says of Jesus, uh, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame thereof, and is seated at the right hand of God. Remember how Hebrews talks about the joy that Jesus will have when he takes us into heaven and presents us before the Father and says, here am I and the children you have given to me. And, and we're exhibit A and he says, Father, with great joy I bring you these, my children. He almost uh, cut the whole thing off the whole flood thing. At the flood, he said, at the flood, God cut it right back down to eight people and he says, we got to get this down to a little more manageable level. And, <laughs> And everybody, he gave 120 years, he gave them 120 years to change their mind, and nobody did. And we're coming to a time in history when, right now, when not many people in this country change their mind. They do, the third world countries, that's another story. I think that this freedom of choice that we have been given by God, which is what God has, is the most wonderful thing a human being can have, but it's also the most frightening. It is frightening. It's, it, it, is it not frightening to have the, this power to be godlike, but 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 nevertheless totally dependent on on God for the ability? The persons of the Godhead are spend all their time loving each other and in creative, delightful, enjoyable fellowship. Imagine that. Imagine being the, the persons in the Godhead enjoying each other and loving each other and and this cosmic wonderful, and then wanting to draw us in. C.S. Lewis talks about this in The Problem of Pain. He talks about that God would, would like us to know that he loves us, but he'd like something more, if possible. He'd like us to learn how to imitate his love by discovering how to give away that love, not just to be on the receiving end, but to take the next step and to give away love the way he gives away love, because that's all he does, is pour out and give away of himself, give constantly pouring out. Well, he wants us to eventually get there if we could. <laughs> Big tall order. Well, that's probably enough for my uh, rant, long rant here. Steve, would you pray for us? Thanks, Lambert. Uh, Lord, what a great Christmas message. Um, we do pray that we would uh, imitate you and give away uh, your love, that we would do justly, love kindness, and walk humbly with you each day. We thank you, Lord, that we can do that. Uh, as you've created us, we don't need to be some um, superstar or, or some person that we can't hope to be, but we can just be ourselves and faithfully serve you, Lord. So that's our prayer, that we would take uh, these words to heart, Lord, and be alert, uh, starting right now, um, and especially this Christmas season, Lord. Uh, thank you for the privilege of serving you. Keep this always in our mind. Thanks for our brother Lambert, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.